Hi, this is Swapna and Ray. Welcome to the Dreams and Hope podcast. Thank you for joining us on this journey where we explore faith, hope and dreams in the context of lived experience of being human. Swapna, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm super excited today. Yeah. We are, We're actually in your house. Yes. This is like the first, the first time, time. Yeah. we've ever done this. Yeah. We have we have been at your church, we have been yeah. online, we have been at different locations. Yeah. And this is our first. And I'm very excited because we have Noel Jacobs. He's a dear friend and a colleague from for many many years. Mm-hmm. We have worked together and I feel our passions and interests align very well. So I'm going to let Noel say hi to us. Hello. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Noel. Sure. So I am a child psychologist trained in clinical child and pediatric psychology. And when people ask what the difference is between those two, clinical child is really focusing on the clinical problems that children and families face at times that are the things that we tend to think about and um, hear about in the news, on the media, things like attention deficit hyperactivity or adjustment problems related to big family changes or loss. Hmm. And the pediatric side is really more of the clinical health focus. So it's working Mm -hmm. often inside health systems, whether it's the hospital or a clinic or some type of community service provision, working with kids around their health needs in a holistic way. So it might be that you work in primary care and you're there to assist the physicians in making sure that the child is fully understood and has access to the resources they need. The areas that I primarily worked in were rehabilitation. So after kids were in a car accident or they had a spinal mm-hmm. cord injury from an athletic event or they had a viral illness that really impacted their whole being. I worked as part of their recovery, helping them feel brave, helping them have hope, working with their families on the best ways to support them in getting better. And then the most recent over the last decade or so that I've been working in is related to kids going through the solid organ transplant process, Mm -hmm. as well as kids with chronic GI diseases that are going to impact their quality of life, but can be managed. And it really matters how you manage it so that they can get back their quality of life, get back into the things that they really care about doing that provide them meaning and are a part of their growth towards adulthood so they can feel good about their future. So Mm -hmm. that's, kind of the professional work that I do. And then more recently, I have gone back into teaching, which was my f- kind of my first life after graduate school, mm-hmm. um, teaching in a comprehensive university mm-hmm. um, with undergraduates in psychology, but then also doctoral students in psychology. Wow. So what led you down the path of psychology and working with children? It's funny, when I was growing up, I learned early that I had an aptitude for science. I loved science. I loved thinking about what affects our lives and that included nature. It didn't just include like the physical body. Mm -hmm. Um, It included nature and it included physics, um, why things worked the way they did. And I had a mom who didn't give me answers to questions that I had. I had (laughs) lots of questions. I had a ton of questions. And I remember the first thing that I asked my mom about, it was about a spider and why different spiders look different. And I wanted to know what this particular spider was. And she said, well, 
I'm not really sure, but I know you could find out if you went to the encyclopedia. And this was the days before oh the internet. Oh my gosh. Yes. And we had, we had, you know, door-to-door salesmen would come oh, every yeah. year oh my gosh. and try to sell us the next set of uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> and we got encyclopedias and that was one of the things that we always got new and when it was time for them. And I went to the encyclopedia, found S. I knew how to spell spider. I think I was in first grade. And... I looked it up and I found a whole lot of information about spiders. I think I found the spider that I wanted, but what I realized is I don't have to ask mom anymore. If I've got a question, I can uh. go to the encyclopedias. And so I, I spent a lot of time in books when I was little, but I also really spent a lot of time in nature. In eighth grade, um, I had a great biology teacher and she said, you seem like this is natural for you to learn biology. Mm-hmm. I was getting very good grades and I really enjoyed it especially the genetics chapter. Um, and I, I remember that distinctly. Mm. And she said, I think that you ought to consider being a physician. Wow. And I said, okay, uh, you know, as an eighth grader, I think this is it. I have found my path in life. It's all going to be very simple from now on. <laughs> and I will just go forward and tell everybody I'm going to be pre-med. It made my parents very happy. Yeah. And I went through high school thinking that I was going to go to med- medical school. I went to the University of Oklahoma for my undergrad. Mm -hmm. I had terrific pre-med advisors and I had terrific English advisors. So when I was in school, I don't know if it's this this way now, but you couldn't be a pre-med major. You had a pre-med pathway, but you had to have a major and they really encouraged you to be in arts and sciences because arts and sciences was great at teaching critical thinking. And your pre-med majors made sure that you had everything ready part of the advantage of critical thinking is you're likely to do better on the MCAT because as a standardized test, as we mm-hmm. all know now, um, standardized tests really test as much in areas of critical thinking, the way questions are designed, um, mm-hmm. the way answers are provided and structured. If you can think well, you can usually do better on standardized tests. Yes. And so you have the the medical content, the pre-medical content that you have to have, but then you have that. Well, college was great. And I really loved my English and I did very well my first semester, my second semester and my third semester, I was confident that I was going to be great. And I had a horrible drop in my GPA because Mm. I was having fun. Uh. I was having fun at the expense (laughs) of really increased coursework. And so I had to meet with my pre-med advisor, which of course she said, you should just quit thinking about med school now. (laughs) <laughs> There's no way that you'll be able to pull this back up because with the hours under your belt and, and how far you pull down your GPA, you cannot get back to a competitive place. Oh, well, word. I proved her wrong, but <laughs> in the time that it took me to get my GPA back up and take the MCAT and start looking at medical schools, I also had gotten into literary analysis in English mm. and literary analysis has a very strong connection to Freudian psychology. And it was amazing. Uh, Larry Frank was my professor and he was terrific and he was very challenging. But he saw that I took a knack to thinking about character development inside plays and stories, especially great English literature, and understanding sort of the backstory of the character and why things happen in the Mm. storyline the way they do based on a character's backstory. And it wasn't just conscious. It wasn't just the history. It was also the underlying thoughts, the the anxieties that plagued them, the problems with um, their sense of self in relation to the relationship with the other. Yeah, like how did they get where they are at? The curiosity behind 
how do you get where you are at rather than just looking at where you are at today exactly i'm curious if uh, old literature thought at that level as it was being written or if later we're looking at that and we're reading into it some of the thought and maybe the person that wrote it down wasn't necessarily thinking about all that depth of the character i very, don't know very possible but especially victorian era yeah there was a whole lot of conscious description of repression and yeah. holding back passion and right. not letting yourself think certain thoughts. And then of course you go and act right. exactly in line with those thoughts that you're trying to hide from yourself. Yeah. He took us down the path of analyzing Jane Eyre yeah. and in, in seeing that and you know, why not only does she do the things that she does, but the other characters in the story, mm. why is, by the way, is there a mad woman locked in an attic? You know, that's, that's yeah. part of the narrative of this. There was so much hidden in that kind of Gothic worldview yeah. that, um, was dying to get out and literally sometimes dying to get out. <laughs> and it just fascinated me fast forward. I've, I've really been having fun with that. And, but fast forward the summer before I would have started med school, the, sorry, the summer before the year, um, my last year of college, um, I got to intern at the office of a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist. And I got to see the difference between their worlds, uh, not just what their training was. And we talked, we spent time talking about that, but what they did in an average day. And this is one of the things I respect so deeply about you is the psychiatrists very often ended up, they, they wanted to understand the, the human mind and behavior and relationship and meaning and the great things that you talk about. And, they almost over time get stuck doing 15 minute medicine checks and you're still working really hard and, and very well to get as much as you can to understand the child and the family and the system that you're working in. But when I saw what the psychologist did, which is spend 45 minutes to an hour and a half, really digging into somebody's life, getting them to the place where they could just let it out and then thinking through. So this is what you're dealing with right now. And it's becoming clear how you got here. Mm. Are there ways that we could collaborate to walk through some things together, learn some skills, try something that you haven't tried before because it's, it's about behavior and it's about thought to see if things could be different than they are because mm. you want them to be different or you wouldn't be here. And when I got to see that and the amount of time spent on it, I realized that is exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. So I loved the, the pre-medical training and the scientific um, learning that I had. And it helped, it helped make sure that when I went through graduate school in clinical psychology, which is where I went, that the physical and the medical pieces stayed with it. It's one of the reasons I loved my pediatric psychology rotations when I was in graduate school. Yes, it's quite heavily medically focused what, what you did. That's fascinating. You know, I feel like with psychiatry, things have come and uh, come up to like being more therapy driven. Like, for example, uh, when I did my training, I was uh, in Baltimore and I was surrounded by these psychoanalytic MDs, which mm -hmm. is almost a dying rare breed now because yes. you do not find psychoanalysts who are physicians. It's just impossible to find these. But I was surrounded when I was training by these. And uh, to me, that was the norm. To me, that was what we did. Sure. Uh, I have always been 
attracted to doing more than medicine because it feels just especially with children it just feels ineffective if you are thinking of a medical solution for something that's systemic and uh, cultural and familial mm-hmm. absolutely so and it's way more fun to play and talk and just uh, explore things in a safe space where you can maybe break through some of the barriers that come up for change sure so and i just like connecting in addition to it and medicine checks sometimes leave less room for that so absolutely and you're yeah. never leaving medicine when you do this the way you do it it's all medicine and i think that's the beautiful thing about it is their domains of it and it it does seem like our system and when i say system i mean healthcare and the broader culture and the pressures of business do kind of compress the parts of medicine that psychiatrists get to spend their time in but mm-hmm. everything that you do is medicine when you're thinking about the history of a child and family system you're in medicine and when you're talking to them about the idea of getting out and having fresh air you and i share this strong strong desire to make sure that everybody sees things from a well-being perspective all aspects of self and all aspects of the environment around us from that perspective that's medicine for sure i think one of our other passions ray is wellness so we've we've had some wellness focused conversations and you've given talks on uh, other formats on wellness and that's that's really something that we in in the podcast are maybe not not hoping but we kind of really wanting everyone to just find their own wellness like it's not Absolutely. your wellness and your wellness and my wellness could look very different because our dreams and hopes are different right so just being on this journey together to find your own own piece of land or piece of mm-hmm. well-being is mm-hmm. what we we are hoping i know you also do something which is very different than what you have <laughs> described which yes. is this uh, couple of different foundations and nonprofit organizations and i'm curious about them sure so the the newest one it's not really new for me but my role in it is new is executive director of the respect diversity foundation that is a group that was formed in 2000 by mike and joan cornblit and mike is the son of holocaust survivors who has his own incredible story and i do not want to tell his story but you should go find it if you if you haven't heard it mm-hmm. um it's told in many places and it's on the website he has a best selling book called until we meet again and mm-hmm. it's the story of his parents who survived the holocaust mm-hmm. and it's an incredibly powerful story but he was raised right here in Oklahoma and raised with values that are very similar to my own that I didn't fully even know about myself until I was probably at least partway through college which is how important it is for us to be interested to be curious to want to know others to want to know people who are not in our immediate vicinity in our immediate socioeconomic class in our immediate cultural and ethnic background group because the more we know people who are different from us different from our own lived experience not only are we more tied to the beauty of the world and understand each other better but we can solve so many problems together that we face and can divide us into camps and turn us against each other for sure like yesterday me and ray were talking about how different we are on like 
if we we couldn't be more different coming from different backgrounds sure different countries uh, he grew up in coast partly costa rica partly us and so we were just uh, amazed at how sometimes the differences kind of fade away in spite of being so different and it's kind of what you're saying right right and for the two of you what does it cause what causes it to fade away i'm going to let ray start <laughs> <laughs> thank you for putting me on the spot no um i think one of the things that we've discovered over the last year and a half is we have more in common than we would imagine that we did um no matter how different we are in our experiences there's a lot more in common we we even landed on yesterday talking about how our family values are very similar even though we were raised wildly different sure and so just on that common ground the other things we like to talk so talking is kind of our thing so we you know those bring us together yeah um and the more we walk together the more those barriers just go away and then we can understand each other i think the understanding comes on the other side of that so it's been absolutely finding common ground and you know one of your values is walking with others yeah. being a pastor yeah. and kind of being kind of the spiritual um i don't know if spiritual guide in some sense is that's kind of the way that's one of your values as well as curiosity mm-hmm. just being open and curious about the other i think i've been thinking it's you know curiosity is almost a luxury sometimes sure. because if you are threatened you really cannot be curious you uh. really have to hunker down and uh, there's no time for play and curiosity and exploration so i feel like you really need to be in certain space to even allow yeah curiosity and i think we are in that space where we have been able to uh have just this podcast journey without a goal without without a agenda as you are asking me what do we talk about and i just think <laughs> things emerge as we get to know each other Absolutely. as we just get as just we sit down and talk about things i think we're at a stage in our lives uh, individually where we're settled and we're not afraid you know there there's a level of fear when you don't know who you are sure and so you're afraid that other things are going to influence and you then you'll be somebody you're not. Mm-hmm. And I think both of us are settled in a certain area of our life at a certain point but still open right. to the mysteries that are out there. And so that we we've I think if we would have met each other 10 years ago maybe it wouldn't have worked. To 20 years definitely not, but we were both at a collective place where we had something settled where we were open to interaction, you know. Sure. Um and I can even equate it to trying new food. I've never been afraid to try new food, but when I was a kid, I'd turn my face up, you know. Right, sure. But <laughs> as an adult, I may not like it, <laughs> but I'll still try it, you Absolutely. know. And and it's very similar in our relationship um being being available, you know, yeah. being available to, to, for that curiosity. And I think curiosity is interesting. I wonder if in another in a war zone area, I think it kills curiosity because you don't have time. You're you're You're, trying to survive you're just trying to live survive yeah. so yeah. i i do think we are fortunate to be in a community right now where we're not threatened with our lives and so that gives space to the curiosity absolutely i think there's maybe kind of an environmental opportunity there but there's also still the personal opportunity mm-hmm. there are people who if they assessed where they were they would admit they're not in a danger zone they're they're not about surviving they can actually choose 
new experiences that can help grow and expand them. Mm -hmm. But it's also possible to be comfortable and not curious. Agreed. For sure. For sure. I think there might be some temperamental differences as well in people where people are maybe naturally more inclined to be curious or just content. Yeah. And I don't think there is just one I'm um, one good way. It's both both things mm -hmm. work well for whatever works well for the individual. Absolutely. The things that I see in my work, if you want to put it that way, as far as working with people in spiritual matters, curiosity is many times discouraged because it would unsettle things that supposedly are already settled. Yes. And so because of that, curiosity fades away. Right. Because I don't want to go mess up something that I've already built. <laughs> and that, and so I deal with that a lot. So there's a lot of very little, low curious people in the, the, the realms that I work in. It's unfortunate. Yeah. And I think that it, it not only keeps us from having that great benefit that I was talking about a minute ago where we can solve problems together. We can make things better mm -hmm. for all of us mm -hmm. um, if we venture out and get to know the other that is different from us. Yeah. And there are parts of our society that seem to actively discourage getting out yep. and being curious, asking those questions. I, I, I grew up Episcopalian, but I also grew up um, for part of my life in a very different faith system because that was my grandmother's mm. and I spent all my summers with her. So I went to her church and I went to the youth group and I got very involved. I had a whole group of friends in that city that I spent all summer with. We went on um, the trips to the beach together with the church and lots of youth group events and questioning was very discouraged. There was there was an answer to the great problems and the answer was very specific and it was the same for everyone. And doubting that was actually a sign that you really didn't believe the faith at all. Right. Mm. Right. Questioning it was a sign that you were not a part of it. And that was a lot of pressure for teenage Noel to feel. Mm -hmm. And I went down that road and I joined the community and I, I was rebaptized and I, um, I, not meaning to get into a, a religious discussion, but I became strongly part of that community. And during that period of time, and this was before college, I really would not have been interested in getting to know people that were very different from me. Yeah. It would have been challenging. It would have raised questions. And I probably, knowing myself then, I probably would have felt very strongly that I needed to proselytize and evangelize. And then I, I know because I was challenged at certain points in high school uh, when I was still part of that community that I would have been very brittle about the way I defended my faith yep. and my beliefs. And I am so glad I this this came up. It was a question for Anne at my our wedding. Um, nine different women hugged my wife and said, I'm Noel's other mother. And it's become this, this part of our history. We talk about my nine mothers because <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> there were these, there were these incredible women in my mom's life that, um, during times when my family was going through some rocky stuff and my parents divorced and, um, my mom looked to her friends for support. She had mm -hmm. some incredible friends mm -hmm. and there were these amazing women who, 
would have me over to their house so that my mom, for example, could have a night off or go on a date. And they were wise and they were curious. They were part of the larger system, not the, the religious system that I was a part of during my high school years. Mm. And they stayed patient with me. They actually challenged without putting me on the spot or making me feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. They challenged the notion that life was that cut and dried and simple and, um, and punishing <laughs> for lack of a better term. Grace was a word that was often used, but really it felt like punishment, yeah. um, being in it. And when I started seeing things in college, I had very patient friends. I had friends that were from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. And they were very patient in staying with me and maintaining their friendship with me, even though I was brittle and I saw those moments. And I slowly came out of that period with this almost unquenchable hunger to get to know more about the world and about people, especially mm. people that were different than me, people who had different views than I did. And that, that carried me through. I was here in Oklahoma city, um, in 1995 when the Murrah bombing happened mm. and there was so much anti-Muslim rhetoric mm -hmm. on the radio and on the news. And even after they had Timothy McVeigh in custody, they were still posing in the media that this could have been a Muslim terrorist attack. And I knew nothing about Islam. Mm -hmm. I knew nothing about the community here, although I had grown up here. I never had to. And I think that's that's one of the things that my um, upbringing did not prepare me for. I really was insulated growing up. Mm -hmm. um, a community of people who pretty much looked like me, lived in the same socioeconomic realm as me, had the same religious views, had the same kind of educational views. And I didn't see things differently. So that was a huge challenge to me. And I became anxious. And I've had uh, several talks with my good friend, Ahmad Chasi about this, who's the imam of the Islamic Society of Great Oklahoma City. I decided to work on it. I decided to learn what I could learn. And I did that slowly. And I did not do it um, very methodically until I moved back to Oklahoma City in 2003. I had left for graduate school, got married up there. My wife and I moved back to Oklahoma City in 2003. and 2005, we had our kids. And about 2006, 2007, one of the larger Muslim communities in Oklahoma City built its first formal mosque. Mm -hmm. They'd had a school and they were actually building the mosque mm -hmm. building. And my brother was excited to tell me that they were about to put the dome on. And I, I thought it was so cool, first of all, that my brother was the, the construction um, company that he um, was the one actually helping build this mosque. And he invited us out and we took our kids out to see them put the dome on the mosque. And I still have so many questions in my mind. And I still, had, to this day, I know I had a little bit of anxiety at the time too. What will I find when I meet members of the Muslim community? <laughs> well, I ended up joining a Quran study group mm. and becoming great friends with guys that were pre-med at OU actually. And we got to share stories about what it was like when I was there for pre-med and what they were doing in pre-med. And I'm still friends with them today. And that really moved me into the interfaith world. Um, I was in part of the Interfaith Alliance from uh, 2011 until today. I just stepped down as president in January. And it's a terrific organization that is exactly the structure of what I cared about when I started doing this, which is meeting people that have different backgrounds and histories and beliefs than I do. Mm -hmm. And it's everybody. We have... Um, 
atheists and we have agnostics and we've had members of the satanic temple and we've had members of every religious tradition you can think of that are here in the metro that have come and been a part of our events and had dialogue and discussion and we find common ground very often our conversations start with so tell me one of your favorite foods and like what are the spices in it because we share spices and we keep in mind we got most of the spices here from vastly different parts of the world. <laughs> Never thought about the cultures and the peoples that right. they came from, but but we share these things. And when we when we learn about each other in the areas of our of our lived experience that are not threatening to each other, mm-hmm. then we can see each other as human and get to know each other, yep. become friends, share more conversations, and then we start to find out where we're different, then we're curious to know. Tell me more about that because I don't have to prove anything and I don't have to defend anything anymore. You and I are friends and we're equals and I want to know you because of that. So it's it was terrific for me to get involved in the interfaith community here. And then from that, I actually met the people in Respect Diversity Foundation and their, their programs are focused on children, um, arts, education, and they have incredible speakers that help transform kids' understanding of what it means to be different and how we can celebrate differences and, and learn from that. Wow. Sounds fun. It's like, you know, how you start with a, with a value or a personality or a thirst, and then you become that person because you live, you live and you work in that area. It's, so your, your story is so fascinating from how you started to where you're, where you're at. And I know that you've had some really significant personal health challenges as a child. I know you played the piano and uh, sure. still play the piano, which is almost Poorly. just <laughs> <laughs> a soft skill, but really it, it it's kind of, it makes you who you are with all of these different parts and uh, and uh, that ma- that makes the whole of who you are. So it's fascinating. For Ray, being being a cancer survivor mm-hmm. at age 14 has been one of his life experiences that maybe even defines yeah. a lot of who who he is because you know when faced with that kind of adversity you really just have to hunker down and mm-hmm. and kind of align with what your values are and mm-hmm. and maybe it forces you to define yourself pretty quickly yeah, I mean, as a young person and and working or walking through pain, difficulty, and then relying on other people, it it almost sped up the bursting the bubble that that I grew up in, you know, mm-hmm. sure. uh, because there was other. I would have never interacted with most of the people that I interact with at, at that age, and it set me on. I mean, probably that's that could be the defining point as far as the curious side of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, interested in science or interested in. Uh, the way the body works and the the way people have gone through case studies to to see how this works. I was in, I was part of a case study group, and uh, the result of it was curing my cancer. Wow! And before that, there wasn't a cure. And then I didn't know how important that was to my life until my wife had cancer, and they used some of the same treatments to treat her thirty years later. And I'm that like, they learned wow, from that you. they learned from me. So that was yeah. like the connectivity of it all. And I, I mean, you were describing. Um, meeting people and simply talking about spices and how that would open up the door to common ground. And I don't know without all of us in this world together and actually understanding each other, 
if we don't have that, we end up destroying ourselves. I mean, Absolutely. because if I'm afraid to interact with you because I'm afraid you're going to do something to me, that that really is minimized into a meme. Yeah. <laughs> Today we have a bunch of memes, and I think we can define cultures and religious groups and uh, people groups with a meme. And it's really unfortunate because yep. it's more of a cartoon. That's not real, you know. There's almost no truth in it by the time right. it's boiled down to that. Right. And so you can, I mean, I grew up in, in Central America and there's a big fear of uh, the Muslim culture, mm. especially from from Costa Rica North. But when you go to Panama, there's a lot of Muslim influence. And so going there, it's almost like, oh, what is, what what's the deal North, you know? Absolutely. And it really is because of the you know, boogeyman tale of children, you know, and, and you grow up with that. Uh, and it takes a generation to overcome a lot of it. I, I can think specifically, you know, if you're, if you're working with the diversity group and then you come from interfaith Alliance and then you come from Chinese child psychiatry and all that yeah. in Costa Rica, there was a big movement when I was a kid to get people to brush their teeth. Very simple. Sure. But it took a full generation. Yep. For the country now to not even, I mean, they, they carry toothbrushes in their pocket and after every meal, they go into the bathroom at the mall and brush their teeth. And that was, it was oh a generational gosh. change that took a lot of work, but they, I don't know if they knew this, but it took a generation for it to actually come about. Absolutely. And so some of this stuff can be broken down, even sitting around this room. Maybe it's our kids that are going to really benefit from the work. Yeah. I sure hope so. Yeah. I see... I see more great things happening in engagement mm -hmm. and cross-cultural dialogue and dialogue between people from different ethnic and cultural backgrounds related to our history, mm -hmm. um, our shared history, which is inclusive of a history of suppression and harm to the other. Mm. And it's great that those conversations are happening because it can allow us to move forward. But at the same time, there are people actively trying to push back against that and close it down mm -hmm. out of fear or out of control. I'm not sure. I think maybe sometimes it's both, Yeah. but I hope that we're able to keep forward motion going in terms of engagement, contact and engagement, because when people see, like you mentioned kids growing up with um, tales of the bogeyman about people of a different faith, yeah. it takes a long time to overcome that. If that's what they heard when they were young, yeah, I mean, it's embodied. It's this, it's an internal fear. Absolutely. And all Almost it takes is one, of, but all it takes is one conversation and something breaks in that, in that thing that controlled you. Yeah. A one conversation that's not what you expected changes the story. Right. And that's under those conditions that the contact is allowed and you're open mm -hmm. to being changed. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think sometimes we can be changed in spite of ourselves. Right. I think <laughs> that there was a time when I was... <laughs> I was probably actively fighting against some of the education that those nine mothers were trying to give me, yeah. but they didn't give up and I loved them enough to continue to listen, mm. even if it felt challenging, but we've got to, we've got to keep doing that. Yeah. We've got to make it, this is one of the things I love about the Respect Diversity Foundation. They try to make it as easy as possible for kids to hear stories and imagine a world that's different than the world that they've lived in because it's somebody else's shoes mm -hmm. have this incredible speakers bureau and these great art events and kids spend time learning about certain concepts like inclusion, like celebration of diversity, 
And then they put together an art project that is their version of a celebration of diversity. And by the time it's finished, we have these incredible projects that are on our website, um, like a huge sun, but each, each kind of stem of the flame coming out of the sun is a different aspect of humanity. Mm-hmm. Mm. And there are pieces that all of us share, and there are pieces that certain people from certain backgrounds share, but it's all part of the one sun. Mm-hmm. And when you see that and you realize kids spent time figuring this out, then they have concepts by the time they finish these projects that they didn't have before. And it wasn't all through direct engagement. It was through thinking and it was through creating something. And it's just, it's beautiful, Mm -hmm. but we have to be able to do those things. We have to have the security to start doing it. And then we have to have opportunity that is when we're young, especially it's provided to us. Mm -hmm. And it's important for us to think that way. It's, one of the reasons Anne and I in raising our kids, we wanted to make sure that they had good education, but that they also got exposed to different ways of thinking. Cause you can go to a good school and have pretty narrow forms of thinking that are, are provided there. And so we know it's not just the classroom, it's the playground, but then it's also after school and before school and on the weekends, what kinds of things do we want our kids to learn about life and about people around them growing up? Mm-hmm. For yeah, sure. I, I feel like starting early is helpful. But as you have told us today, you can start later and still kind of work through some of the things. And maybe, you know, not everybody needs to. Sometimes I feel like some people are just comfortable and content and not able to push themselves. And to me, I feel like I, as I give myself grace... I want to give everyone grace in just being. Sure. I feel like uh, I don't have any answers and I feel like I cannot be the one who tells people this is the only way or the right way or the should way to, to live. So so I feel like I, I can honor some people's resistance as well, which mm-hmm. is part of who they are, who they, what their story is and where they are from and you know, sometimes some wounds are visible and some wounds are invisible, like like coming from a war zone is a visible wound. But Absolutely. there are many, many times we see people who look perfectly fine and might be carrying deep, uh, deep things that make them who they are. Absolutely. We can't know someone's entire lived experience. Yep. For sure. For sure. When you're touching on the other side of inclusivity, which is if someone is resistant, being okay with that is part of the collective absolutely and i would say too even in those situations we can find common ground with anyone and if if anything is going to change someone's trajectory if they have a i always call it foreclosed um if you have a foreclosed sense of the world around you and it's safer to be there especially because of lived experience then the only thing that's going to have an impact on that in a in a a way that would move that person towards openness to change is going to be positive healing contact Mm -hmm. with somebody that makes it safe to explore even a little bit. Like there's different levels of curiosity. You were talking about resistance and motivation a minute ago. And we spend in our work, we spend a lot of time working with people on their motivation. (laughs) If you're trying to improve somebody's health behavior, you have to understand what part of them wants the change and what part of them actually doesn't feel like they would benefit from the change. Mm -hmm. And then see if there are ways to work with that motivation 
and gets them to the point where they're willing to try it. Because another thing that you and I know, and this is true of the diversity world too, most of the time when we do something that moves us in a positive direction for our health and well-being, it feels good. And when something feels good, we want to do it more. Yeah, for so, sure. So then our motivation comes up, but we have to have that first catch. And it's one of the reasons why in great grad training, motivational interviewing is part of all of it now. Mm. Mm. We're trying to help people be willing to look inside at themselves about what do they want to change and why, how powerful is that desire, and what could be in the way of that. Because if we can't get them past that, then they may have barriers that we can't see, like you mentioned about their lived experience, that will keep them from being able to successfully take the first step. And the problem is if they want to do something, but there is a motivational barrier in the way, and so when either they, they don't ever feel like they try well, or they try and it doesn't work out the first time, then it's even harder for them to try it again. Yep. Because they already partly feel like they have failed or they are a failure, so they shouldn't try to make that change yep. because it's just not gonna work. And if they stick their neck out in curiosity and someone slaps them, they're gonna pull back in and never stick their neck out again. And I think the curiosity aspect is within a bubble that people have put on themselves, yep. allowing them to be curious within that would pull them out of it if you let them be curious, you know? Absolutely. And so they have made their own barriers. And if every time they stick their head out, you slap them, they're not gonna stick their head out anymore. And so I, I think that's where the love of the community comes together and one another, we helping each other along the way. Definitely. Uh, not to slap back. <laughs> right, well, and there are certain circumstances where the community is not gonna have an impact. One person yeah. who can get in there and safely connect with them yeah. Mm -hmm. might make way more difference than any kind of community messaging. Well, nine mothers is an interesting concept that you have because I've never really thought about that in my own personal life. And it's cool that you had that in your wedding day that would have these nine mothers. But I almost think, and my, my mind went this way, is that nine lives that poured into your one life that, man, made a difference. Absolutely made a difference. Yeah. It was the idea that they had more lived experience. They were yeah. farther along. I saw them as wise. I knew that they were caring. They were patient but they exposed me to thoughts and experiences that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And so that trust that my, that my mom, when we're kids, mm -hmm. it's yeah. all about social referencing. We check our parents' facial expressions. We only go with people that they say it's okay to go with. And even then it's a little bit nerve wracking if our parents going the other way and leaving us. Yep. Um, but that provides us the first level of trust. Okay, my mom trusts you. So I trust you yep. to that level. Mm -hmm. And then the experience and relationship helps us move forward. And I'm so thankful that they provided me that because I, I definitely think a large part of my curiosity and trust come from that. And I realize too, not everybody gets that. No. Yeah. Very unique. It's rich. For yeah. sure. It sounds like a healing, healing connection as well, because uh, of all that you describe, I was thinking non-parental adults which is aunts and uncles are such important figures because you're trying to be an individual away from your family of origin and sometimes when your mom tells you something especially as a teenager it feels important to have your own voice and so yes yeah. <laughs> these are maybe less threatening uncles and aunts and uh, elders that uh, 
that don't challenge your sense of identity as much as maybe your hmm. immediate family does. Definitely. There I know there were times as a teenager where I would not have accepted something <laughs> from my mom or my stepdad or my father, but I accepted it from one of those other women um, because I did. I I was not as challenged um, or threatened by them. Huh. And I was more willing to listen to their viewpoints. Like there were times when I just didn't want to know my parents' viewpoints on yeah. something, but I was willing to listen to those viewpoints and they, they made an impact, including helping me realize, oh, your parents are right. You know, my parents got less and less smart when I went from 13 to 18. And then somehow between 18 and 22, every year, it seemed like my parents were smarter. Genius. Exactly. <laughs> Well, I think a, their IQ to, changed quite a lot. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, they got so <laughs> much smarter. And came well, yeah. back. As your brain finally developed, you're like, oh, <laughs> they're. Uh, I think that's a good uh, tip or uh, you know insight or wisdom for parents that are listening is you know make sure that your friends are the people that you want to speak to your kids when your kids won't listen to you. Sure, that's a great that's a great uh, piece of wisdom. Well, you know, that's this great. has been so fun. Yeah. I cannot believe an hour has almost passed. I can either. Yeah. Wow. We've just been sitting and uh, <laughs> we started at one place. We ended up in 15 different yes. places. <laughs> Most <laughs> definitely. Good. We talked about our past, our present and what makes us who we are today and our passions. I hope you can come again and talk some more. It's been lovely to have you. Thank yeah, you. Thank great. you. It's been great. Thank I've you had for, a great time and I would love to come back. Yeah, thank you for taking some time out of your busy schedule. I was going to ask you, how do you get everything done? Sounds like you got a lot in your hands and a lot of things. So uh, thank you for carving out just a little bit of time for us. It was my honor. Glad Appreciate to be that. here. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.